Hello and happy new year. Welcome to the Women Crush Wednesdays podcast from New York Women in Film and Television, where we discuss current events, feature interviews from women working in the industry, highlight the accomplishments of our members, and preview upcoming NYWIFT events. I'm Janine McGoldrick, and I'm here with my co-host, Leah Kearney. Hi, Janine. Happy New Year. Uh, Before we kick things off, I want to start with a shout out to the composer of our new musical intro, Elspeth Collard. Elspeth is a composer, lyricist, an orchestrator, an arranger. I had the pleasure of working with her on a recent short film, and she's fantastic. So we'll be sure to include a link to her website in the show notes so you can check out more of her work. Mm -hmm. And uh, thanks, Elspeth, for helping us kick off 2021 with our our brand new musical sound. Yeah, I love it. It's so upbeat. And after I listened to the final edit, I spent the next half hour humming it. (laughs) <laughs> around my around my apartment. So it's it's yeah. really catchy and fun and we hope you guys like it too. Yeah. Well, we have a great episode for you today. So we're going to start off with our Women Crush Wednesday spotlight. Kelsey Marsh is going to tell us why NYWIFT member Jean Chris is crushing it this week. Today's Woman Crush Wednesday spotlight is Jean Chris. Jean has been an avid writer and media producer for a number of years prior to her diagnosis with breast cancer. She has led sales teams in cable TV and the NYDMA, produced TV, online, digital media, social media, and created national events and managed regional advertising campaigns as a digital mediapreneur at Jean Chris Media LLC. She paid it forward by becoming an author of a trilogy series, My Pain Woke Me Up, sharing her journey and inspiring others. She then innovated a contemporary fashion line at Crisscross Intimates LLC to help survivors and others in need of post-surgical undergarments feel confident and look beautiful day one as they leave the OR room and throughout their breast surgical recovery. From the boardroom to our hospital bed and now to the garment district, her fashion-forward designs are award-winning and utility-patented, offering colorful, chic bras, panties, leggings, and even a men's shapewear line. Jean offers complete solutions for all your post-surgical needs. She thrives with a passion for fashion and media. Follow Jean Chris and Crisscross Intimates throughout social media and shop the collection today. Check out our show notes for more information. Jean, your NYWIFT community congratulates you on your many successes. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Kelsey, and great work, Jean. Now, let's jump into some recent news. Leah, as a member of sag After, you came across a great budgeting resource. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so in December of 2020, sag After announced a new micro-budget project agreement. There's been other contracts for indie producers to engage sag After talent in their, in their projects, but one has been specifically new media, others are specifically short film, others are the micro- or low-budget feature. And this just seems like it has a lot more opportunity and flexibility for independent or low-budget producers. It's called the the New Micro-Budget Project Agreement. It's for projects with a budget of $20,000 or less uh, per picture or per episode. It's got to be live action, but it can be scripted or unscripted. It it sounds like it can be any duration. So if you're producing a a project, a low-budget project, if you want to hire SAG talent, this is a a flexible agreement that will allow you to bring union actors into your project and still accommodate your budget needs, which given the current circumstances, (laughs) I think a lot of people are probably in need of. I haven't spoken to anyone yet who's used this contract, so I don't have any firsthand knowledge of people's experience with it, but just thought in terms of new announcements and resources available that we'd, we'd throw this out there and let people know that it exists. And it covers everything from production through distribution? Yeah. Distribution is film festivals, free-to-consumer new media, Academy Award consideration screenings, public access. You can check out on the SAG website, there are certain, certain instances that it's not going to be a fit for. I, I think animation is one mm-hmm. that it doesn't cover, and, and there's other use cases as well. But uh, it's worth checking out if that's you. Yeah, that that sounds like a great resource and a great way to help filmmakers who are on those micro budgets access the type of talent that they may want and also give SAG actra, actors 
a chance to work on projects like this because right now pickings are slim. So this could open up that to a lot of people to get some more work. Yeah, I think it has the potential to benefit both sides of production. Well, upcoming this month is the Sundance Film Festival, which is now taking a totally different shape than uh, it ever has in past years. Obviously, the pandemic is still impacting a lot of the industry, and Sundance had to pivot to online platforms this year. Uh, So they're featuring seven days of premieres, events, artist talks, and other cutting-edge type of exhibitions which is great because as we know, especially for a lot of indie filmmakers, Sundance is one of the premier festivals. Just to highlight a couple of things that's happening with them, they have over 70 plus feature films that are going to premiere online with dedicated time slots. So audiences can watch simultaneously and then it's followed by a Q&A, which people can participate in too. About two days after the premiere, all the films return to the platform and they will be up for a second screening and offered on demand for 24 hours. So if you see a film that you like, but you can't actually catch it on the time of the premiere, you can go back and follow up later. Uh, There's a lot of great films this year. We'll put the link to the website up on our show notes. I haven't had a chance to browse the whole lineup because, of course, there's like 70 plus features. There's, you know, so many shorts, but I'm excited to sign up and get myself a pass and take advantage of being able to attend. I've never been to Sundance, so I feel like I get to go to Sundance this year without leaving my living room. And what's great is that they offer, like most festivals, different fees. So there, I think it's yeah. 350 if you want a pass to the whole entire festival. And then if you just want to one watch one screening, it's $15, which right. is totally reasonable because that's about the price that you would watch if you were watching a film. They're really trying to make it as accessible and also participatory mm. as possible so that you're not just sitting back and watching, that you are interacting and engaging with what's happening with the festival. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Well, with Sundance right around the corner, we are excited to be able to highlight a member's film that's going to be featured there. Gina Charbonnet is the executive producer of Ma Belle, My Beauty. And Janine got a chance to talk with the writer-director, Marion Hill. Ma Belle, My Beauty is really a lovely film. It tells the story of Bertie, Lane, and Fred, who once shared a polyamorous relationship in New Orleans until Lane vanished from their lives. Two years later, Bertie and Fred got married and are living in Fred's family home in the countryside of the south of France when Lane unexpectedly shows up in Bertie's seemingly idyllic new life, and she finds her former lover much different than she remembers. Bertie is disillusioned in her jazz career, still grieving the loss of her mother and clearly alienated in this small white European town. This is the first feature film for Marion Hill, who is New Orleans-based director with roots in Vietnam, England, and France. Her direction of the camera is devoted to the nuances of femme power, queer sensibility, and radical sensuality across cultures. With deep love for music, visual storytelling, and cultural fusion, Marion has specialized in grassroots and small-scale production, collaborating with folks around the world to deliver authentic cinema stories in all forms. Marion's short films, Bird of Prey and Goddess House, played at multiple film festivals and have garnered over 3.5 million views online. She joins us today to talk about her experience creating Ma Belle, My Beauty and having its world premiere in the next category at the Sundance Film Festivals. Welcome, Marion. So happy to have you on the podcast. Hi, Janine. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you on this beautiful day. Well, congratulations on being accepted to Sundance with your first feature film. So tell us, was getting into Sundance in particular, you know, this festival, a major goal of your distribution plan, or did the timing just kind of worked out that way? Sundance was definitely a major goal, both on a personal level and a distribution strategy, given that we are such a small film, unknown directors and producers, emerging cast. So we sort of, for me, I kind of, knew when the Sunset deadline was. I knew I wanted to have a very close to finished cut to present 
to Sundance in their regular deadline window. That was important to me to not leave it, you know, to the extended deadline. And then I kind of worked backwards and made sure that we were staying on schedule to be able to present our best option to Sundance. And we're just so thrilled. I mean, honestly, it was kind of a relief (laughs) when we got in and sort of what I what I first felt and what I told folks was, this is the plan all along. So more than me just rejoicing, I'm kind of like, okay, great, the plan, the plan is going. It's all going to plan, so let's, let's keep going. Due to COVID, the festival is operating in a much different fashion than it usually does. So tell us about how your film is going to premiere in this new format, how people will be able to see it. And with that, how did that change your expectations about being part of the festival, and were you disappointed at all that it's not going to be the traditional Sundance Film Festival that one would expect? I'm, I'm really happy about what Sundance has, has managed to pull off for us this year, and the main focus is the virtual component, and all films are on the virtual platform, mm-hmm. and I love that they're doing a you know live premiere, so in theory, in essence, 5,000 people around the country are watching at the same time, which is a very cool feeling, even though I'll be sitting (laughs) in my home um, (laughs) with my dog and my girlfriend. It's kind of special. The past week, I've been sending out all the ticket info to my friends who otherwise, my friends and family who otherwise, you know, would have had to wait who knows how long to see it. And because this was such a grassroots kind of crowdfunded film, it's so great to be able to share the premiere with everyone who gave us $10 or more two years ago. We actually are really lucky enough to be having a one of the satellite screenings here locally in New Orleans. The New Orleans Film Society, who um, they put on the New Orleans Film Festival every year, which is a wonderful festival, and they're mm-hmm. an amazing team. And they are going to do an outdoor screen for the week and have programmed various features. The entire local community gets to either watch it from home or come out and watch with us. And honestly, it's potentially better. (laughs) Just thinking that, that it opens up the experience to so many more people that wouldn't be able to be there physically in person in a theater. Exactly. Yeah. And to all experience it together, you know, and, and affordably too. I think the accessibility around it is really special. And I actually have never, I've never been to Sundance. And so what I'm telling folks is that I, I have, I have no idea what I'm missing. So that's fine <laughs> with me. So I'll be happy to just kind of experience it at home. Cast and crew is mostly based here. We'll all be very happy. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the film. It explores several different themes, including a polyamorous relationship, depression, cross-cultural relationships. Why was this a story that you wanted to tell? I wanted to tell a contemporary love story. For me, growing up, what drew me to films was the Casablancas of the world, the very romantic, kind of gut-wrenching just what felt like a classical romance was really compelling to me. I loved to watch that. I enjoyed watching things like that. When I started, when I grew up and started falling in love with myself, I realized very quickly that love stories very rarely looked like they did in Hollywood. And so with my first feature, I wanted to tell a love story that speaks to me personally and speaks to you know my communities and So for me, that meant, you know, predominantly queer characters, predominantly Mm -hmm. female, femme characters, and love across different cultures and what that looks like for, you know, two people who are in love who speak different languages and decision to be in one of your cultures and losing touch with the other person's culture and kind of how all these things intersect, I was just really, I really wanted to look at the nuances of the intersections of all those different things and bring really compelling, different, well, different for the world of film, but nuanced and complex characters that we, that I never got to see growing up that I wanted to see um, kind of work through their relationships. Yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that the film, although it is centered around this polyamorous relationship, that 
the sexuality of each character isn't their defining character and that there's so much more to them and what's happening within the film beyond just the overall romantic relationship. Was that something that you worked towards getting across or just kind of fell into place that way? I think that's very natural to me to not so much have to define folk sexuality. It just kind of is what it is. And I'm hoping that the storytelling world, we really are able to become less and less focused on a queer person's coming out story or struggling with trying to understand their own identity and really look at, okay, what, is a, what do relationships look like after we've dealt with all that baggage, which we all deal with, mm-hmm. and then eventually it's behind us. And we're kind of just being who we are and we're comfortable in our own skin, which we never see that enough. So I think it was partially intentional. It was very natural to me and to the actors. We all kind of think about sexuality and gender identity the same way. So that was really easy for us. Idella Johnson is really all of the actors are phenomenal in the film, but especially Idella. Was she kind of an inspiration for the character of Birdie? I understand that you talked to her a little bit while you were writing the script. How much influence did she have on who Birdie became? I don't had a lot of influence, for sure. Birdie's character really, I think, was both of our, a child that we birthed together in a way. I had an idea of Birdie in my head, you know, early on in my script writing. But then when I met Idella, when I started to talk to her and saw her performance in a couple other shorts and she, and she was interested in the film and we just kind of talked a lot. I think Birdie's character really took a swerve into, you know, someone that came from both of us, specific parts of us. And yeah. And, and here in new Orleans, I, I, um, I'm surrounded by a lot of musicians in my day-to-day life, and a lot of my friends are musicians or artists. I think artists going through stages of their art based on how they're doing emotionally and mentally is something that I've always found fascinating. And, and with my friends, I see it in them, and we talk about it. And then I met Idella, and we just were so, so much kind of understanding art and depression the same way. And... And it was really easy once we got on set to kind of quickly be on the same page about where Birdie was at in every at every point in the in the film. And I think because she she tapped into so much of her own personal understanding of herself while she was playing the role. And she actually just watched Idella just watched the film for the first time about a week ago. And she said it stirred up a lot of things for her to see, you know, to see Birdie again. Yeah, um, kind of opened up a lot of things on a personal level for her. And just it's I, it must be very cool. I'm really excited to keep picking her brain on what the new experience is like for her as Idella to kind of see the fullness of Birdie's arc objectively as a as a viewer. I yeah, I haven't quite talked to her yet about what that's like, but I cannot wait. And I would imagine that that part of the storyline is really timely right now because so many musicians are unable to perform and to be out doing what they love because of the pandemic and trying to find new ways to express their art. So that's one of the things that I thought about a little bit as I was watching this, where she's her depression is a little bit different than what's happening right now, but I would imagine that a lot of people can still stand and connect to her character because of current circumstances. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, I honestly hadn't actually thought about that that much. Um, I definitely know I hadn't connected it to my film, but I know you're absolutely right. I mean, musicians, especially here in New Orleans, who their entire existence is gigging, you know, playing with other people, playing for other people every night. And I, I've, to friends I've spoken to, it's like they've lost a sense of themselves in this very sad way. I'm a huge fan of New Orleans and jazz music, so I just loved the score. Idella's voice is amazing. Talk a little bit about why you wanted to incorporate music of New Orleans within this film, and because it's set in France, it's a little bit different, but yet it has this, this wonderful connection. 
two things that come to mind first. The first one is I always thought as soon as I you know, started writing the script, I was like, wow, how cool would it be to have traditional New Orleans jazz be kind of the base of what we're watching? And it made a lot of sense, you know, because I was writing for a story that would take place in France, but very much with New Orleans characters and a New Orleans sensibility. So that that was kind of natural, but then it really just came out of my composer, Mahmoud, who is born Moroccan and has ended up in New Orleans, like many of us, has been able to just bring his own heritage and love for world music from all over the world, this deep love for the musicians of New Orleans and kind of just let it all exist together in one sound and in one film. It was just, it was very natural. I think because of the circumstances of what we were doing for the sound to come out that way. Really was beautiful and it fit with the film perfectly. So you filmed in France. Did you actually film in your family home? Did I read that correctly? Yes, you did. That That is a family home, yes. I moved, I've moved around a lot in life, and that's kind of the one consistent route that I go back to is that tiny village that no one's ever heard of. How big was your crew? What was the production like having going overseas to bring people over there? Did you hire a crew from France? How did that work? We had a tiny crew. It was about 20 of us, including actors. We brought, I think, 11, 12, 13 Um, people from the U.S., mainly from New Orleans and just a couple from L.A. And then all the French help we had were actually childhood friends of mine who came down from mainly Paris. We had some interns from a film school in the closest big city, which is Montpellier, and they came and joined us. We had four interns who were very much not interns. They had full <laughs> crew positions. I had interns like my hair and makeup uh, costume department were, um, was these wonderful, hardworking, just talented uh, French interns um, who had the time of their lives. So it, it was really small and beautiful. Some of us were living in the house, and then we had two very close neighboring houses, like just across the dirt path, basically. We had 10 people in one of them and four in the other one. And we all kind of had dinner together at the house. You know, we, it, was, it was a summer camp. Uh, we had, you know, local, local caterers bring us dinner every night. And I was definitely a little afraid of shooting in a very old <laughs> family house full of antiques and things like that. But knowing that these were all basically my friends who were just mm-hmm. coming to stay made it made it all feel very safe. And we, we kind of all had the time of our lives, actually. Um, it was great. It, it sounds like a great experience. What, if any, challenges did you face during the development or the production? It was surprisingly smooth. For me, it was important that it be smooth. So I was very careful in writing that I wasn't writing things that I was going to regret later. So what what do you mean by that? I knew we were going to be shooting handheld. So I knew that and I knew we weren't going to have tons of lighting. You know, so I was like, okay, I'm not going to do a car scene at night. I'm not <laughs> going to do any giant tracking shots especially Mm -hmm. at night, you know, so I really kind of catered the story to the house that I knew very well. You know, I thought of all the rooms that a scene could take place in. And then, and then actually the, the party scene at the neighbor's house was literally my neighbor's house. That was almost as far as we went (laughs) outside the main house. So, you know, kept it all very achievable Actually, I think the biggest challenge was was personal because, um, you know, there was the language barrier for 75 to 80% of the crew, including my two lead producers. And we were, of course, you know, working with locals to do all of our catering and driving and rentals and things like that. For the three weeks leading up to when producers and crew started to arrive, I was kind of handling everything from 
finishing my script and shot listing with my DP to, you know, going out and making sure there was soap in all the bathrooms and making sure that the caterers knew what everyone's dietary restrictions were, you know, and doing a lot of translating and stuff like that. So those, I would say the three weeks, the two to three weeks leading up to production was the closest I've ever been to losing my mind just because (laughs) there was so many things that had to be done and that I was then for a second, I was the only person who could do them. But once I landed and we all got in the same place and we had, you know, French people on the producing team that showed up and it was really smooth. We didn't have any disasters. And you got to enjoy the beautiful French countryside. Yes, we did. We shot in 13 days and that was over three weeks, three to four weeks. So total, the longest person there was there for four weeks. So it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. And I think if we had had worse weather, that's the kind of thing that would have really hurt us. And we were tremendously lucky with the weather. In our introduction, we have mentioned that one of our New York Women in Film and Television members, Gina, is an executive producer on the film. How did you connect with her? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Gina and I have known each other for a couple of years now. May, and we first met through, I think Gina was kind of a, in a mentorship role for uh, the Emerging Voices cohort, which is a annual program hosted by the New Orleans Film Society for Louisiana-based filmmakers of color, just to kind of mainly help us with development, things like that. It's basically a, a, a fellowship. And I met Gina through that and we kind of just hit it off on a personal level kept bumping into each other you know clearly had a lot of similar interests for me it was important that you know we have local figurehead on our team who was really just going to support us any way that we needed and she was so so excited about the film and the character birdie i think especially really really spoke to her the rest is history and the rest is history. <laughs> so before we wrap up, now that you've transitioned from shorts, doing your first feature film, getting it into Sundance, what piece of advice would you give to somebody else? One piece of advice that I guess is on my mind, and it sort of has come up already, but you know, we all want to tell stories, but it's what resources do we have to tell the stories that we want to tell is where we all get caught out. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, just... It's always been very natural to me to kind of look around what I have. What do I already have? Who are the people in my life that I know? Who, what are the um, places that I have access to that are begging to have a story take place within them? You know, right from there. And I think writing, writing something that felt within means, of, means that I could see see myself getting for production and just writing achievably helped keep the momentum because for me, momentum is so important. I can get hopeless very quickly. You know, if fundraising isn't going well or if, if I can't find the perfect castle that I want to set my medieval <laughs> lesbian like quarantine film in. If you're trying to make a first film, you know, trying to make a short and you don't you don't have a lot of money. I think we've all we all are in that situation or have been in that situation. Yeah. Um, you know, make a story with what you've got. One would be surprised how you can make a really powerful story with so little. Well, you certainly succeeded in doing a, a beautiful film, Ma Belle, My Beauty premieres at Sundance on January 30th, and our listeners can check out our show notes to get a link to purchase tickets. Uh, So, Marion, good luck with the film, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Janine. Um, Thanks for watching the film and for asking thoughtful questions, and um, yeah, I hope everybody else gets a chance to tune in. Well, we hope so, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Janine, for a fantastic interview. I, I enjoyed that so much. And I, I so enjoyed Marion's generous sharing of her experiences. There was something about it that felt just relaxing to me as I was listening to it because it just felt so down to earth and real and, and her in, insights were so practical and personal. 
So, so thank, thank you both. Thank you, Marion, for coming on the show and, and sharing with the NYWIF community. Well, into our next segment uh, about this year's Muse Awards. You had the pleasure of speaking with two of our amazing NYWIF staff members who put it all together, uh, made this amazing program come to life especially at a time where we've had to do so much pivoting, taking huge live events and bringing them online into a virtual format. So, so stay tuned. Here's uh, some key learnings from the team behind the Muse Awards. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Janine. I'm here with two of the nine WIFT executives responsible for developing last month's virtual Muse Awards. Ladies, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Katie Chambers. I'm the Director of Community Engagement on staff at NYWIFT, responsible for communications and membership on the staff side. And then I'm also one of the producers of the Muse Awards. Hi, I'm Ismani Michelle, and I am the Finance and Special Projects Associate at NYWIFT, and I'm one of the co-producers of the Muse Awards. Great. Well, thank you so much for hopping on for a quick chat. First of all, congratulations on orchestrating a seamless and really inspiring event. Very well done. So Thanks. virtual claps to you, <laughs> thank you so much. on that. The Nine with Muse Awards have been a 40-year in-person gala, and you had to make that switch to doing a virtual event. So just give us a brief rundown on the main challenges you faced and trying to maintain the engagement in the spirit of the live person event and doing it now on a virtual platform. Yeah, I mean, you really stated it, Janine. It's such an institution at this point for our organization and and frankly for the New York City entertainment community that that was our biggest hurdle. You know, we've done now more than, at this point, it's more than 80 virtual programs at NYWIFT since the pandemic started, but this was you know, a very different beast. It's not just a mm-hmm. panel. There are a lot of moving parts. And we really wanted to try to capture the spirit of the show, which is so inspirational and, and you know, a little bit of ho- holiday festivities and really engaging with the community. And we we really worked to find some virtual platforms that could help us do that. And also we tried to let that spirit of tradition permeate throughout everything that we were doing and every conversation we were having with our our honorees and the team behind it. Just echoing what Katie just said, I think for for me, December and uh, the Muse Award is synonymous. I think over a decade now I've been part of it. So it was like, how do we make this virtual Muse uh, just as inspiring as all the Muse before. And, and we know that a lot of people come to Muse Awards for that. So how do we take that ceremony and make it into a narrative story on, you know, on vi- virtually? So, yeah. And how did you work to kind of strike that tone between making it celebratory, but also acknowledging the challenges that not only, you know, the industry faced, but that people faced personally. We know that the main thing people come to the Muse Awards for is to see the honorees connect with their fellow NYWIFT members and with the community and raise each other up. So we felt like no matter what we did, those were two things that really had to stay. We worked with our special events committee on our board and with our executive director, Cynthia Lopez, to really target honorees this year that we thought would speak to not only the challenges of this year, but also the mission of our organization. So this was the first year that we had a theme for the Muse Awards, which Mm -hmm. was art and advocacy. And we made sure that every person we were honoring, in addition to being, you know, a talented member of the media or the entertainment industry, used their, their platform to, for positive social change. And we felt like that was something that set this show apart from the other shows and also from our other Muse Awards. And given, you know, all of the political and social unrest of this year and the incredible challenges faced by so many different communities, we wanted to make sure that we were acknowledging that in some way without it, without it being a downer. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, besides the Muse Awards being inspiring, it's um, in this year in particular, I think, 
It's about the community coming together, you know, after a year of pretty difficult year. And so I think we wanted the videos to reflect that, even though we also wanted to celebrate that we were here together and during the holidays. So we, in the opening videos and the closing videos, we acknowledged the year, but also showed the past news awards and the different honorees and how they've inspired, they've been inspired and they have inspired. And we know that our members, you know, love to come to Muse Awards because they feel that it leaves them with this indomitable, like, fortitude. And I think that when you leave the Muse Awards, I know for me in particular, even um, before I was one of the co-producers, I'd always be in tears <laughs> just, um, <laughs> just because everyone was so, um, I admired just everyone's path and and what they had accomplished. So I think we wanted to, we, we tried to make the videos reflect that. And we had a great editor from LA that did the opening and closing videos. Uh, and we had, uh, her name's Jennifer Dean and Jennifer Woolen, who's been doing these videos now forever. I think there should be an award actually <laughs> uh, in her name for these videos because um, she's just been amazing. And, you know, we worked together to bring it to life. Yeah. Jen Jennifer Woolen is so incredible at capturing just the, the absolute spirit of each honoree and figuring out what it is that makes them special and makes mm -hmm. them tick. And she's able to review so much, you know, people that have had, you know, 30, 40 year careers as actors, she'll, she'll look through all that they've done. And in, in a two minute clip, be able to, to pinpoint the exact flashes of each scene that, that speak perfectly to who they are. And in this, in this year, she also had the challenge of making sure that it all spoke to our, our theme as well. So we were always keeping yeah. an eye towards keeping it uplifting, um, talking about, you know, positive change, maybe controversial topics. Um, and she, she incorporated that so beautifully. What platform did you use to host the event and how did you go about finding the right one that would work for what you wanted to achieve? Um, we used Paragon, which for, for the show itself, um, we looked at a lot of different platforms. We've been looking at similar events all throughout the year. They had done a really wide range of events, diverse in terms of length, format, audience. And for us, we wanted it to be as customizable as possible. We wanted, we wanted to make sure it didn't look like a glorified Zoom call. And <laughs> we wanted to have our branding for the show and for our organization all over the screen. Paragon lets you do that. We wanted to have a live chat element because again, the one the one thing that we we really didn't want to lose was the engagement. And granted, it's still not the same as being yeah. at a table with your friends and colleagues. But that was so much fun. New friends, but at least you know we you could you could talk to people in the live chat. And I mean, one of the first people who said hello in the live chat was Julie Tamor. So <laughs> normally, normally if Julie Tamor is at the Muse Awards in a room of twelve hundred people, you're not going to see her. But in this case, everybody got to respond to Julie Tamor because she was in the in the chat with everybody else so in many respects it democratized the process a little bit um but yeah Par paragon was was fantastic and i mean just from a, a logistical perspective of putting this online you know we recognized that the show needed to be shorter and if we were at a hotel it would be a, at least two hours because it mm -hmm. includes dining and getting people on and off the stage and it's a video and then their speech but instead this year we incorporated the remarks into the clip reels we kept it at a tight one hour because we know Zoom fatigue, even if you're not on Zoom, you know, on, online virtual event fatigue is a real thing and we didn't want to lose people's attention. So it provided a new challenge for us and a new opportunity. Yeah. And speaking of logistics, especially about the remarks from the honorees, how did you handle going about, you know, filming that? Because obviously it was still in the midst of COVID. So there are a lot of issues about, you know, doing production. Yeah, I feel like not one of those honorees shot their video the same way twice. <laughs> um, and is, I'm going to leave it to Ismani to talk about that because we, we both worked on the show, but Ismani was the queen of organizing each of these individual shoots, including a very COVID safe shoot in a, in at Manhattan neighborhood network studio. So Ismani, if you want to talk about yeah. that big process. Yeah. 
with COVID, there's definitely the challenge this year, whereas the years before we would just send a crew to someone's home office to shoot the videos this year, we had to take into consideration health concerns, compliances. And so a lot, and we had, so a lot of what was done was directed from afar through, through Zoom. <laughs> so we had to rely heavily, I think not heavily, but we had to rely a lot more on our honorees this year mm -hmm. than the years before and relying on them to be able to understand what we're communicating aesthetically. So because they're doing the framing on their end, some of our honorees did the shoots, did their interviews on iPhones. And so we had a director from New York City, we'd zoom in and they we'd direct them virtually. And we also had a crew go to one of our honorees in LA and, and that was shot. And that was also a lot of coordination through Zoom, making sure that all the COVID uh, procedures were communicated and followed. And we also are shoot at Manhattan Neighborhood Network. We had, to, we had a COVID compliance officer on site to make sure everyone was safe and everyone was happy to, in a way, to be able to still do this and mm -hmm. still be able to accomplish this despite COVID and everything else that was the pandemic and everything else that was happening. We had the benefit of seeing so many other events and, right. and pulling some of the tips and tricks from other folks or seeing some things that we felt that maybe fell a little flat. Uh, so we we benefited from everybody else's experimentation. And our, our board member, Alex Cirillo, was also our New York-based director. And she did a fantastic job beaming in often by, as Ismani said, by Zoom or by iPhone to direct folks, including directing Alana Mayo, who was, you know, in her office at MGM on the other side of the country. <laughs> um, and when we would get on the phone to say, you know, we're going to have the director on, on Zoom. And I would expect people to be confused by that. But everybody's so used to it at this point that, yeah. that you know, th thank goodness it was in December and not in April. Now, you had just said you took learnings from a lot of other virtual events that have been happening over the past several months. So what advice do you have for other people that are looking to do similar type of things on a virtual platform? Be very organized, a lot <laughs> of communication, because it's not just that your, your event is happening virtually, it's that your crew and your team is virtual or, and remote as well. You know, Ismani and I have been working together for several years now, and we also normally share an office. So I can just turn around and say, hey, what do you think about this? And mm -hmm. instead, it's, it's I've got to call someone who's in a different state and to, to have casual conversations. So you really need to be taking lots of notes, staying in touch with each other, being hyper aware of everybody's schedules, definitely staying flexible. You know, we would schedule a shoot a certain way and then hear from an honoree that morning that suddenly they weren't comfortable with XYZ because overnight the news about COVID had changed. So being ready to make those decisions and adjustments on the fly are really important. Similar to what Kay just said, I think uh, you have to be organized and have a structure and idea of what you want, what the message is, I think is really important. And, and having, approaching it more as like a narrative, like a show, this virtual platform, I think you also have to be flexible and know that it's organic, just like any sort of production. You know, you'll have an idea of what you want, but um, throughout the process, you'll revisit it and be able to say, well, this idea is no longer gonna work based on, you know, what we've shot and what we have at this moment. And that's a great point too, that, you know, the original, the old muse that hopefully we'll go back to is really, we approach it more of like a live, theater experience with video elements. And Ismani is absolutely right. This was a TV show, flat out. <laughs> and it's a very different approach from, from top to bottom when you're, when you're producing it that way. The award show is a big fundraising event for NYWIFT, but tickets this year were pay what you can. So talk about why that decision was made. We recognize the incredible personal and financial 
financial and professional hardship that our community is facing right now. Uh, we also recognize that it's a very different experience as, as fantastic, we can now say as it, as it was to attend the Muse virtually. It's not like you're going, not like you're going out and getting dressed and going to the hotel and getting this big glamorous lunch mm -hmm. and having the open bar. You're not paying for the same experience. And we didn't expect people to do that. So we did want to make it pay what you can. So you could attend Muse for as little as $1. Or if you could contribute more than that, then you're open to do it. And I, I do have to say that, you know, our community really did come through and, and quite a lot of people paid a decent amount to attend this, which we so appreciate. And just from a, a financial perspective and a, a nonprofit perspective, we just put the focus on making this open to the community. And then it, it is a focused on corporate sponsorship for, for the majority of the funding. For those of you who weren't able to watch of the live event, the program is still available on the NYWIFT website. So everyone go to NYWIFT.org to check that out. And before we let you go. Katie, since you're here, instead of doing your, your Katie's Corner, why don't you give us a quick highlight of what's coming up with NYWIFT programming in the next couple of weeks? Sure. Looks like we have on January 25th, we're doing uh, an industry screening and a Q&A for the film Identifying Features, um, which is going to be available through our partners at Kino Marquee. So you can rent the movie there and then stick around for the Q&A afterwards. And then I'm very excited about this one. Um, in early February, we are doing a program with our Women's Film Preservation Fund, the NIWF WFPF, presenting Trailblazers of Early Cinema, which features um, silent film uh, pioneer filmmakers, Angela Murray Gibson, Grace Cunard, Lois Weber, and Alice Guy Blachet. So I, I'm always a big early, early silent film history nerd. This is a great opportunity to see some of the films that our preservation fund has helped support and preserve, and then also learn about these incredible trailblazers of early cinema. And that's going to be on February 1st. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for joining us. And again, congratulations on the wonderful work that you did. And we're looking forward to the other great programming that you guys are working on over the next couple of months. So everyone stay tuned for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie, Ismani, and Janine. That was You're welcome. Fantastic. I'm sorry that there's so much of me on this podcast this time. <laughs> Don't be. It's, hopefully we're moving toward being able to be in person again, but I foresee virtual events being around for for a while at least in the near future and, and I think so, so too yeah as things start to open up a little bit it'll probably go to maybe a hybrid model so we thought it was important to give listeners some feedback on how to make that happen before we close out uh, let's talk about recommendations I know you have one that I really love as well and I've been yeah. meaning to talk about I'm glad that you're bringing it up. We stumbled onto Ted Lasso on Apple Plus, just sort of like, ah, this looks light and fun. And and we just, after that that first episode, we were like, you want to watch a second one? My husband and I, and yeah, let's watch. And then you know, <laughs> just the, binged the whole series. And we're so surprised and delighted to find, not only did was it funny, but it had so much depth. Mm -hmm. And it sort of felt like exactly what, after the epicness of 2020, exactly what I needed. It was like, it, it just, it's uplifting. It's heartfelt. It's a story about people getting past their ego and, and defensiveness to find mm -hmm. common ground. Frankly, I think we could use more of in our world. Yeah. And, yeah. what do you think? I really enjoyed it. And I went in exactly the same way you did. I thought, oh, okay, I heard about this. I'm probably not going to like it. It seems something that is very predictable. And it totally proved me wrong. It yeah. was like you said, funny, heartwarming, but smart. It went in a direction with the characters that I totally did not expect. I think it's a really lovely, fun show. So I also have another recommendation. There's a new show that just came out on PBS called All Creatures Great and Small. It's based on a, a series of books from the 30s by James Harriet about a young veterinarian who um, gets hired uh, by a kind of grumpy, uh, gruff veterinary surgeon in the countryside in England. And it's, it's just uh, a sweet, sweet story. A lot of cute animals. 
people finding their humanity and their integrity, mm-hmm. the goodness in each other. And then I just wanted to give a shout out to our NYWIFT board member, Yvonne Russo, whose animated short that she wrote, directed, and produced is available to watch online. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's about Zitkala Shah, who is a, a prominent, who was a prominent Dakota suffragist who advocated for Native American and women's rights. And um, I had first heard about Zitkala Shah uh, from Okima T. Moore, who we had on the podcast last right. year, who is a um, supervising post producer on the PBS series Unladylike 2020, the which was fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> Loved that. And uh, so I had seen one of the segments about uh, Zitkala Shah, and I was excited to, to revisit her again in Yvonne Russo's short. So we'll include the, the link to that. You can check it out online. Yeah. But what about you, Janine? What, uh, what's your recommendation? I recently watched Death to 2020 on Netflix. It's from the creators of Black Mirror, which is another show that I'm a big fan of. It's a mockumentary that takes a look back at the hell that was <sighs> the past year in a really enjoyable way. Hugh Grant plays a history professor. Samuel L. Jackson is a political reporter. Tracy Ullman plays the queen. <laughs> and I've seen some reviews that were a little bit mixed, but I really enjoyed the dry, sarcastic take uh, that they had. And looking back at all of the awful things that happened this year in a sardonic, funny way, I, I appreciated that. It was nice to kind of end the year to look back with a little bit of humor. Yeah. And their take is, I thought, pretty clever. So I enjoyed that. Excellent. Well, that is all for this week's episode. We invite you to continue sending us your stories about one of your experiences working in the film and television industry. You can email us at communications at nywift.org. And we ask that you send in like a five minute audio file or a two page written submission, which then we'll narrate. And of course, reminder, names and project titles can be kept anonymous. Yep. Or send in a tip or a piece of advice that you learned when you attempted something new in your job for our upcoming My First Time segment. We look forward to another great year of podcasting and helping promote all the great and inspiring work done by women in the industry. And please rate, review, and share our episodes. Absolutely. Well, till we meet again, keep on crushing it.